Hello, beloved listeners. Kim here. Quick heads up that about 15 minutes into this episode, it's gonna sound like poor Katie turned into a robot. Now, don't worry, our friend Katie is just fine, but sadly, we didn't notice this issue until editing. Please excuse this weird glitch, bear with us, and we promise we'll sound better next week. I hope you enjoy the episode. I also loved at some point, Mandira is like, oh, let me give you a haircut. Like, you've got great hair. And I was thinking about the fact that, like, yes, Shahrukh does have great hair. Yeah. And also, in that, like, biography about him, mm-hmm. it's talked about how his hair is, like, too great. Like, Yeah, he's got too much hair. Is yeah. One is a problem, apparently. Right. <laughs> so I thought about that. I was like, oh, yes, yeah. we all know. Um, his hair has too much power. <laughs> yes. Welcome to Two White Girls Talk Bollywood. I'm Kim. And I'm Katie. And we're here. To... Oh, there's no singing. There's no, no dancing. There is some singing. Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. I'm sorry, I forgot about the singing. Um, there's a little bit of singing, but mostly we're here to talk about our favorite Bollywood duo, Shah Rukh Khan and Kajal. Yay! This intro got really screwed up, but I think it's yeah. okay because we're talking about my name is Han. Han. <laughs> From the epiglottis. From the epiglottis, yeah. <laughs> and this was this was one we hadn't seen before. No. Either one. And we never know what we're getting ourselves into when we do that. We may think we know. <laughs> we are often wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I think both of us knew it was gonna be serious. But also, I kind of liked your thought last week when you were like, I think it's going to be serious, but it's going to have a happy ending. The ending's not not happy. I think it has an uplifting ending. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's, yeah, necessarily a way to have a fully happy ending in a movie that involves the death of a teenage boy. Oh, like a 12-year-old boy. Yeah. So tragic. I had seen that they were going to be at a funeral. I was like, who's yep. going to die? I don't know, but it's not Shahrukh or Kajal. Right. <laughs> and then finding out that she has this son, then I was like, they wouldn't kill this kid. Yep. I had that exact thought, too. They did. And then they did. And I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there were a few instances throughout the movie where I was like, that's today's America. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And also some moments where I was like, that's not today's America. Yeah, I was like, that never happened. (laughs) And that's, you know, ambitious of you to presume that it may have been or could be. But yeah, we'll, Well, I'm I'm looking forward to breaking that all that down as we come to it. (laughs) Kudos to Karan Johar. Like, he's got variety under his belt. But I'm used to a cute romance or... A family drama. <laughs> yeah, but think about Kalhonaho. I mean, yeah, that's And how trendy. that just rips your heart right out of your chest. And also, I felt like what was very Karan Johar about this movie was just how far off the deep end it goes in the last hour. Yes. Like, 
boy, oh boy, were there just seven or eight climaxes. <laughs> I was just like, what's happening? This is so much. Yeah, it was so much. And that did feel very Karan Johar to me oh, um, yeah. in the most loving way. It's it's those moments when you're reminded that like, oh, yeah, this is this is a quintessential Bollywood film. Exactly. Yes. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's let's do it. Okay. So yes, we open in San Francisco in November 2007. I did have the thought, and I feel a little bit silly because I wasn't really paying super close attention to the date that was like the future point of the movie. mm -hmm. Not paying attention to the fact that it was late 2007 and I was like, man, it's really sad that the president he's going to meet is George Bush. (laughs) What a boring president. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. And also responsible during this whole thing. So it is interesting that, you know, like his presidency did start with 9-11, essentially. It did, yeah. And then we see that backdrop to the whole film. Yeah. That is a very good point. The whole movie takes place during a Bush presidency. Except (laughs) Except, the end. Well, it's still, he's still president, but. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Yes, this man is looking up President Bush's travel itinerary. We will eventually learn that this is Rizvan Khan. But then we see Rizvan go to the airport. And as he is going through, waiting in line for security, there's like this ominous music playing in the background. Mm -hmm. And right away, I was like balking at that because I was like, I don't think this man is a terrorist. Don't try to make me think that he's planning something nefarious. (laughs) I understand why they made that choice. Yeah. (laughs) And also, I was like, I'm already up in arms. (laughs) I'm ready. Um, But yeah, so we see Rizvan saying a prayer under his breath in Arabic. And then some TSA agents remove him from the security line, bring him to a back room, and strip search him. They end up finding out, like, okay, he's got nothing on him. He's clean. He also has a little card saying to whoever finds this card, the person holding it is autistic, and they're asking him why he's going to D.C., and he's like, I need to meet with the president, I have to tell him my name is Khan, and I am not a terrorist. And then they're like, oh, okay, tell him howdy for me, Mm -hmm. jerks. But Rizvan misses his plane because of this detaining, and so he doesn't have money for another plane ticket, so he's like, I'll have to go by bus. And so off he goes. In this first moment where he's being detained by TSA, I thought it was really interesting that the way that his autism presents itself really seemed to be also part of the reason that people were nervous around him because he fidgets a lot. He's Mm -hmm. got three stones in his hand that he's playing with and he's muttering under his breath. His eyes are kind of darting around, which is all just normal behavior for him and it makes the people around him nervous. And then when he starts, yeah, muttering a prayer in Arabic under his breath, in a post-9-11 world, someone assumes that he's a terrorist. Mm -hmm. So I really thought that the movie was going to be a little more about the intersectionality between his being neurodivergent and Muslim. It wasn't as much about that as I thought it would be, but in this moment, it really stood out. Right, yeah. Thank you for calling attention to it. And I was actually thinking about the representation in this film, and I honestly don't know enough about autism to say whether it is a true representation. I think it's also hard because there are autistic actors, 
Mm-hmm. Also, I love Shah Rukh Khan. And, and from yeah. my perspective and what I know, it does seem like it was handled well and compassionately. But it did occur to me that, yeah, this movie is not about his autism. Right. I think the choice to have him on the autism spectrum was more to justify the fact that he would think, well, yeah, I will just have to go right. and talk to the president now. Yeah. But so we see Khan waiting for a bus at a bus station, and he is writing. And as he's writing, he explains that he has a hard time voicing his emotions. He really can't, but he can write them no problem. And so he is writing to a woman named Mandira, and he says that he loves her, and he just can't say it in words. And then we get a flashback to the Hindu-Muslim riots of 1983, when Rizvan was living in India with his parents, he overhears a group of men calling Hindus rogues who deserve to be shot. And so part of how he processes things is that he repeats what he hears, and his mom overhears him repeating that, and then she sits him down and imparts what he says is like the most important lesson he ever learned. There's no real difference between Hindus and Muslims. There's only a difference between people who do good deeds and people who do bad deeds. Pretty cut and dry and yeah. not bad advice. No. And and I think it's she frames it in such a way that it, it sticks with him. Yes. And that is very much how he views the world. He's like, okay, mm-hmm. you do good deeds, you are good. And you do bad deeds, you are bad. And yep. you could argue that there's a lot of gray area to that. Absolutely, yes. But... You know, I think for a logical mind such as Rizvan's, this makes a lot of sense. Yes. Um, And we also see that he has a brother named Zakir, who Mm -hmm. is overlooked by their mother just because Rizvan does take some more energy than Zakir. And so his younger brother is kind of gross up jealous of him for taking their mother's attention. Yeah. Um, So Zakir leaves for America when he's 18 years old. And as an adult, he's married, he has a big job at this corporation. Then their mom dies. Mm-hmm. And so Zakir brings Rizvan over to America. Um, so we see Rizvan arriving in San Francisco for the first time. We see him moving in with Zakir and Zakir's wife, Hasina. And we also learn that Hasina is a psychology professor and she diagnoses Rizvan with Asperger's syndrome syndrome. But yeah, so then we see that Zakir brings Rizvan to work with him, and we learn that he works at a beauty product supply company. Yeah. And so he tells Rizvan that, okay, you've got to work too. You need to go out and sell these products. It really honestly feels like the worst possible job (laughs) for Rizvan. Yeah, his brothers just, like, go out and travel to all these different salons. Yeah. And Part of Rizvan's autism is that he gets really stressed about new places and yeah. new people. <laughs> yep. And very overstimulated, yep. hates the color yellow. Doesn't like loud Anything noises. could put him in a very stressed and uncomfortable place. Yeah. And Whatever. His brother decides that this is what's happening. Yep. And while out and about, <laughs> he encounters a yellow crosswalk, which... I've never seen that in my life. That's just unfortunate. <laughs> like, I've been to San Francisco. I don't remember what color the crosswalks were. I'll pay closer attention the next time I'm out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, because as we stated, Rizvan hates the color yellow. And he's like, I have to get across the street. I, 
he doesn't really want to step on the yellow, but he's trying his hardest. He makes it out to like the middle of the road, but it's it's really overstimulating. And then a trolley comes along mm-hmm. and starts ringing its bell to get him out of the way. He is also overstimulated by loud clanging noises. Yep. So he just kind of stops and like puts his hands over his ears to try to make it quieter. Um, the trolley is able to stop before hitting him, but then all these people like just just swarm him. Yeah, they all get off the trolley and they're all like, "Hey, freak, get out of the way!" Now, I'm one of the first people to to lay down some criticism of this country <laughs> and the people in it. That's just not how yeah. a trolley full of people would react to this man in discomfort. They would not move. Right. <laughs> they would stay sitting on that trolley. Yeah, they would. Most yeah, they're just kind of like this is inconvenient, but I'll just let you yeah. suffer alone over there and I'll suffer alone over here. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's America for you. <laughs> yep. Um, also, happy 4th of July, everyone. <laughs> oh, right, I forgot to say, yeah, this is coming out on, yeah. God, there's so much to say about it. <laughs> happy American Independence Day to anyone who cares to celebrate. <laughs> um, so as this all is happening, a woman comes out of a neighboring store. And we're seeing it from her perspective. So we just mm-hmm. hear this woman telling all the people to go away, like, leave them alone, get away. And so this mystery woman approaches Rizvan and tells him it's okay to be scared, but you shouldn't let your fear get so big that it keeps you from your goal. All right, bye. Yeah, <laughs> just leaves him in the middle of the street. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's nice that you gave him some words, but I thought that maybe... You'd, like, bring him in, give him a glass of water, see if he, like, needs help getting home. (laughs) No. Um, And so Rizvat happens to look up as this woman walks away, and he follows her into the salon where she works. Mm -hmm. That's where he sees this gorgeous woman. She took my breath away. I just, she always does. (laughs) Like, when I first heard her voice, my heart, like, fluttered a little bit. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Oh, my God. Kajal for president. I love her. Yeah, seriously. But, yes, so... This is Kajal's character, Mandira. And Rizvan marches in there. He sets his suitcase down and he explains that he has Asperger's syndrome and he's here to sell beauty products that work. He knows because he tried them all himself and that's why his skin is glowing. But I just love this because he's like, look, I may make you a little bit uncomfortable because I interpret the world differently, but here's kind of like, this is how I act very logical. I don't understand feelings. So if you're feeling something, you got to tell me. And it's just very like matter of fact, like he's clearly memorized this speech. (laughs) It's a good spiel. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell like that Mandira is, is charmed by this. Yes. And so she orders some products from him and then we get the first song and all of the songs, most of the songs in this movie are like just montage Yeah. songs. So I didn't actually write down any of the titles. But during this first song, we see that, you know, Rizvan's creeping outside the salon, just kind of watching Mandira. And she sees him standing there and waves, and he looks over his shoulder to see who she's waving at, and it's him. (laughs) All the usual adorable kinds of stuff. Yeah, just really cute. (laughs) And then she gives him a haircut. Oh, yeah. But in response to the haircut, Rizvan tells Mandira to marry him. Her, she's like, oh, ha, ha, stop it. Yeah. And then, like, the next day or two, see Rizvan waiting for Madeira at the salon, and he just immediately launches into, 
this whole spiel that he memorized from her co-worker. And he's like, divorced. You're divorced. You had an arranged marriage at 19, and then your husband ran away to Australia with a different woman when you were 22 years old, and he hasn't spoken to your son, Samir, since he left. He's just, like, going on and on. Mm-hmm. And there is understandably, like, upset by this. Yeah. Uh, and so she tells him to go away. Mm-hmm. But then he comes back with balloons. Yeah. And so he shows up with these balloons, she's receptive to that, and then he tells her to marry him again. And he tends to uh, rattle off facts about things. And so he's doing that when Mandira stops him and says, okay, you have to stop being an encyclopedia until you can show me something in San Francisco that I have never seen before. Mm-hmm. And then, and she kind of trails off, and then Rizvan is like, you marry me. <laughs> and she's like, no. And then he keeps saying it. She's like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's cute. It's um, very sweet, yeah. And then next, we get a montage of Rizvan, Mandira, and Samir going around the city to all these different places. As Rizvan tries to find a place she hasn't seen before, he keeps failing. She's like, nope, I've been here before, I've seen this. But it's really cute because we also see Rizvan and Samir becoming, like, buddies. Yeah, their relationship is really, really sweet. Yeah, movie. yeah. And then speaking of sweet relationships, there's a moment <laughs> when Rizvan and Mandira are by the water, and together they sing, We Shall Overcome. Which, I didn't recognize it as that song when they were singing it. I didn't realize that it was that song, well, until later in the movie when it okay, was sung in yeah. English. <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't often hear it in other languages. Like, no, and even though it's translated, it's also not like they're singing the melody all that great, because neither Shah Rukh nor Kajal are particularly good singers. <laughs> right, right. And I tease each other for, which is good. Yeah, I had that thought, too, because I was like, well, surely this is an R we shall overcome. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it was. Um, it was. But then we go back to present day. And we see that Rizvan is looking for a place to stay, and he comes across a motel run by an Indian man. And as they're negotiating, like, room fare and stuff, a brick gets thrown through the window by a white guy. Mm -hmm. And the motel owner runs out of the building to chase the car away, yelling. Um, I think he calls, like, the white man a donkey, which is fair. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and then he tells Rizvan that he should put up a sign saying no Muslims allowed to avoid further trouble. Mm-hmm. And then Rizvan starts to walk away, and when the guy's like, where are you going? Rizvan says, my name is Khan, and I'm not a terrorist. This man is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, you know, a man who he visually identifies as Indian, and he is correct, but he just is, just, like, visually identifies him as Indian, he assumes that he's Hindu. He assumes that he speaks Hindi. And also that he wants would want to watch porn in his, like, room at the motel. Yeah. Um, I'm just like, you're making a lot of assumptions about this man who you know absolutely nothing about. And some of them did turn out to be correct, but right. some of the really important ones were yeah. not. Agreed. And then we're back in the past in San Francisco, and we see Rizvan uh, go to Mandira's house early in the morning, mm-hmm. wake her up drag her to a park where they're able to watch the sunrise and 
watch the buildings of San Francisco emerge from the fog. She is pretty impressed, and she says, I've never seen this before. Marry me. Mm-hmm. And it's really sweet. Like, oh, yeah. gosh, his reaction is just, he's beside himself with happiness. He's so excited. It's yeah. so sweet. <laughs> um, and then we get the next song montage, where we see Mandira moves to Banville, and she's getting her henna, like, they're having their celebration about their marriage. We see Zakir's wife, Sina, comes to the celebration, which is big because Zakir was against this marriage because Madeira is Hindu. And we see this fun dance. And the diversity in this scene. Yeah. And movie in general is great and ten times more diverse than a movie made in Hollywood in 2010. Right. I did. I noted it's just a big, happy, multicultural, interfaith community. Yeah. Just like in Kalhonaho in their street. Yes. They're just like, everyone is just happy and together, and it's great. Agreed. And yeah, it, it would be like nice the... if that were reality. <laughs> but then back to the montage, we see them moving into their home. They're both praying in their separate ways. Um, they're opening Mandira's salon. Everything is really happy and really nice and lovely. Mm-hmm. And then they get a phone call one morning. And they turn on their TV to watch the footage of the Twin Towers coming down on September 11th, 2001. Which, it will never matter how many years go by, like, I will still always get choked up whenever I see any of that footage, hear any of the recordings of people reacting, like, that just always will put me back in that place. Yeah, it's rough, always. Um, Mm -hmm. Then their family friends are holding a fundraiser to raise money for the families of the firefighters who died. And Rizvan, following Islamic custom, donates a percentage of his salary. So he gives them like $3,500. Yeah. And then we see as a crowd, they're all kind of holding candles. They're all singing together. And Rizvan begins his own separate prayer in Arabic. And then we see people just kind of moving away from him. Yeah. Because they're uncomfortable. Their faces literally look disgusted. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned specifically the moment of him making that donation. That was, Mm -hmm. you know, 10% of his salary and that being a part of his faith. Because, you know, in that moment, everyone's very grateful for his faith. Right. But the minute he starts to demonstrate it in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable... Mm-hmm. you know it's disgusting also so so after the scene we we really see that the issue is this lack of understanding what islam is in the states yeah pre 9-11 you know people could kind of pretend it didn't exist mm-hmm. and then after 9-11 i think a lot of people living in the states who had never encountered islam they were like well clearly this is the entirety of Right. We see instance after instance of attacks against people perceived to be Muslim. And then we see a teacher in Samir's school teaching kids about religion. And she very matter-of-factly says, And Islam is the most violent religion where they believe in jihad. I was 
and maybe a little too young, I guess. I literally remember you learning remember being like told that. that. Okay, I remember so, reading sentences like that in textbooks when I was in elementary. Oh my god! Because yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. So I was gonna ask you about that because I was like, in my experience, I don't remember learning that. Like that was just never something I thought about when I thought about Islam. I thought about the Quran. I thought about this other stuff, but it was never okay, this is, like, the main thing about this religion. So then I was wondering if that actually happened. I remember that was my perception of the Islamic faith. Yeah. You know, it's like when you're young, you just believe what teachers tell you. Yeah. And so when you're hearing about this religion being violent, you think, yeah, this must be just core to everybody who believes this thing. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't until I was in my teens and into high school that I... Can you understand that I was that I had been miseducated? Right. Yeah. I was. I didn't. I didn't take a class specifically in religion. Right. Until I was much older. Yeah. So I think the the classes where I was learning these things were like history, history. social studies. Yeah, social studies. And so it would just be. It wouldn't be like you know. And now we're going to have our unit on religion, and here we're going to talk about Islam. It was literally just like. And then there are conflicts. Islamic people are violent. And that's why a lot of these conflicts happen. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, then obviously kids learning that grow up and not everyone gets reprogrammed and here right. we are. And they just continue to believe that. And it's like, yeah. did you know, also it's like, how many violent Christian people do you know anyway? Oh my God. Yeah. You know, God, yeah, getting into it, but just wanted to say that the majority of like the mass shooters in the U.S., guess what religion they're not? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But yeah, so we see that in the montage. We also see that Hasina, Sakir's wife, is assaulted and a man takes her headscarf, just rips it off of her head and says, get out of my country, which unfortunately can be heard on America's streets today. Mm-hmm. And then we see Zakir actually encourage Hasina to stop wearing her headscarf to avoid any other attacks. Yeah. He says that Allah will understand but these people will not. God, that is just such an impactful moment. Like, yeah. telling this woman that she can't express her religion in the way that she has chosen to probably for most of her life mm-hmm. because it's not safe for her to do that anymore. It's right. terrible. Because of the acts, you know, of a small group of people. Right. Um, and also, I was just thinking about the truth of the matter is in a post-9-11 world, if your skin was any shade of brown... Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was bad. Like, it's yep. it's not so much that your average white man, Joe, recognized that Al Khan is an Islam... Like, as an Islamic name. Yeah. It was more, mm, you're brown, you have an accent, you don't belong here. Right. You I, must be Muslim. Yeah. yeah, that's something I was thinking about, too, and I feel like yeah. they put... They put in some of these cues of... Because this is... The audience who's viewing this movie is probably largely Hindu. Right. As a, Yeah, like, as a white person watching it, it's like, Mandira would be facing discrimination oh, yeah. herself just because she's not white. Right. Yeah. Then we see that their family friend Mark is sent to cover the war in Afghanistan, and he ends up getting killed. Yeah. And so at the funeral, you know, we see Mandira is comforting Mark's wife. Her name is Sarah. Then when Samir goes to comfort their son, Reese, 
Reese shrugs him off and calls him some derogatory name. And then it's intermission. Um, and then after intermission, we see that Reese continues to avoid Samir at school. And then Samir catches up to Reese at soccer practice and tries to talk to him again. And Reese continues to make derogatory comments. But then they catch the attention of four deadbeats who are like yeah. 18 years old. These boys are like 12 or 13. Yep. The four deadbeats start beating up Sam. At some point, Reese butts in and tries to get them to leave him alone. But Samir calls them a name. Not to say it's not his fault, but he's standing up. Yeah. These boys are like twice his size, and there's four of them. Um, and then one of them ends up kicking a soccer ball straight at Sam, and it hits him square in the chest, knocking him out. The older boys realize that, okay, something serious just happened, and they tell Reese that he better keep his mouth shut, and they all run away and leave Samir laying there. Yeah. Ugh. It hits him hard enough that it ruptures his spleen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he is taken to the hospital. I guess someone comes across him, but he dies there. Yeah. And Rizvan and Mandira are there. Uh, Rizvan comes back. He had found a book. He sits down next to Mandira and he starts reciting facts about the spleen. Again, because this is just how he copes. It's like he can take an action and that he can learn about this thing. Yeah. Um, but then Mandira tells him that Samir is dead. But so Mandira goes to the soccer field where he was attacked, and Rizwan follows her, and she screams that they killed him. Mm-hmm. And she says that if she hadn't married him, and if she hadn't taken his last name, Samir would still be alive. Yeah. Then Mandira says that she's leaving Rizwan. And he says, well, it's your house. You shouldn't leave. I'll leave. But when when should I come back? Yeah. He doesn't understand. Like, in this moment, Madeira is like, get out of my life. I never want to see you again. Yeah. Um, and she says that he can come back after he's told every single person in their town. And why stop there? Tell every single person in America, even the president of the United States, that you are not a terrorist. And that Samir was not a terrorist. And that Samir did not have a terrorist father. Yeah. So that is why we see Rizvan on this journey. Um, I think the way that they portray Mandira's grief oh. is is really well done. I mean, it's a great yeah. performance from Kajal, but also just sort of the justification that, again, I think she actually gives it a little bit later when she's talking to Sarah, but mm-hmm. that she can't be Rizvan's wife. All she can be right now is Sam's mom. That's all yeah. she has the capacity to be and... Until she can be anything else, she can't be Rizvan's wife. And yeah. that makes that makes so much sense. Like, it doesn't... She didn't stop loving him. She just... She has just this one thing that she can focus on right now. She doesn't have the capacity for anything else. Right. Um, I believe it's in that same conversation that she says she is just a mother whose son was killed. Yeah. And, you know, I was watching this film... With the perspective of, okay, this was made 13 years ago, what is the same and what has changed? And sure, she yeah. she said that, and you see her holding up a sign of her son's face saying justice for Samir, it has not changed. No. Yeah. Like, we continue to have racial killings. Um, Certainly, yeah. And, and yeah, and so that just really hit me hard, that there's a lot of mothers who 
who get uh, called into this fight that never should have been theirs. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, this movie was... <laughs> yeah, it was sad. It's a heavy one. <laughs> um, but there's also another song montage where Mandira is working with the detective to try to find out who killed Samir. Uh, we see that Rizvan runs out of money, and so he is offering to fix anything to try to make more money so he can continue his travels. And then we see him in Wilhelmina, Georgia, in June 2008, uh, where he is sitting at a bus stop when a boy falls off his bike and skins his knee. Mm-hmm. This boy is Joel, and he asks Rizvan to help him. Rizvan gives him a piggyback back home, and we learn that his mom's name is Mama Jenny, and Rizvan stays with them for, I think, probably like a day or two. Yeah. But he really connects with them because Mama Jenny's oldest son died in Afghanistan like two months ago. He goes with them to church where they're having a get-together kind of in honor of all of the soldiers who died in Afghanistan. And during this, Rizvan stands up and speaks about Samir. He says that he was not only his son, but his best friend. But Rizvan's whole thing is that he can't express emotion the way that others can. Yeah. But in that moment, he does. Yeah. And then the whole church sings, we shall overcome. Yeah. Ugh. It's a really beautiful moment. I really struggled with this whole depiction of this small African-American town. Yeah. It's upsetting in this movie that's supposed to be about tolerance and acceptance mm-hmm. to depict black characters with such extreme stereotypes. Yeah, Mama Jenny, um... Why yeah. was her name Mama Jenny? It's a great <laughs> Why wasn't her name just Jenny? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. She really gave some, like, mammy vibes. Um, well, exactly. Yeah, and I think it was great to have this story where he ends up in this, you know, this rural town in Georgia right. that's predominantly, not, if not exclusively, black mm-hmm. and gets welcomed into their community. All of that's beautiful. But yeah, you could have written the characters better. Yeah. We really could have done different things with the way that they present themselves. Just not written them as much, really. It's like you have to go out of your way. Exactly. To write these characters in this way. Yeah. Yeah. I really would it would have taken very little editing to just eliminate a lot of those those harmful stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I I agree. Um, Yep. I think this is, like, the moment, too, when I got confused because I was like, okay, so we are talking about We Shall Overcome, which Mm -hmm. I always think of as a civil rights song. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I actually looked it up. I was like, where did this originate? And it did originate in the U.S. Okay. But then it became an anthem for protest movements across the world. So it has been translated into other languages. Yeah. Rizvan then goes to LA for a speech that Bush is making on a college campus. He's been all over the country. I know, I was like, dude, you came from San Francisco. (laughs) Just to end up back in LA, yeah. Yeah. Um, But he visits a mosque to pray because he gets there a few days early. uh, And there he hears a man telling a group of other men that Allah is asking them to shed their blood for Islam. Mm -hmm. Rizvan can't stay quiet through this. He stands up and is like, that's not what this story is teaching us. Um, and he states that the path of Allah is one of compassion and love. He convinces, I think, a, a fair number of the men sitting there. They're just like, 
Yeah, that sounds right to me. Like, not yeah. what this other guy is saying. And then Rizvan leaves the mosque and calls Hasina to ask for the number of the FBI. Mm-hmm. And then we see Rizvan at the college, and Bush is walking through the crowd. I was surprised to see they actually had footage of Bush. Yeah, me too. I was like, that guy is Bush, right? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I'm yeah, not that's, crazy. That's him. That's the um, man himself. They did a good job with that. And yeah. He shouts out, my name is Khan, and I am not a terrorist. And then this, like, white guy next to him. I, I just, I was like, God, you're like a Karen, but worse. <laughs> um, they call those Kevins. Male really? Kevins. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, my dad's a Kevin. I know. <laughs> like, really a Kevin. <laughs> like, he's named Kevin. Yeah, he's not a Kevin. He's Kevin. He's Kevin. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, this horrible white man mishears him and starts just screaming that Rizvan is a terrorist. Yeah. Uh, everyone scatters. Rizvan kind of stays put because he's not fully comprehending what's going on. But then security immediately moves in and surrounds him, guns pointed. And there were two student journalists at the speech who recorded the footage and they, they caught all this on film. And they decide that there's more to Khan's story. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they try to find any news outlet that will run their story, and they keep getting turned away. But meanwhile, Rizvan is being detained in a holding center as everyone tries to figure out if he poses a threat to Bush. There's a guy just shouting questions at him about Al-Qaeda, which obviously he's like, I don't know anything about that. I guess I should have read up on it before I got here. The college students are, they visit a different news outlet, but the man there says he's too busy. The college student notices a picture on his desk and he's like, okay, you are a sick man who was confused for a Muslim after 9-11 and so you changed your whole life, mm-hmm. but you can't change your schedule for a Muslim man who is being treated as less than human. And then the guy's like, yeah, you're right. And the story runs the next day. Yep. <laughs> Understandably, has an impact. Yes. Um, and so the judge on Rizvan's case, you know, confirms that Rizvan called the FBI to uh, relay information about this terrorist recruiter at the mosque. And so they're like, well, you did a good service for your country, so you're not a terrorist. And they release him. And, yeah. And then, <laughs> then Rizvan finds out that Wilhelmina, Georgia has been hit by a hurricane and he just goes there i uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it, the hurricane's still happening i don't know how he got there it's confusing to me because you're not just like walking into a town usually there's like boats or right the hurricane could have been over mm-hmm. like that's what got me. I'm like, if they really wanted him to go rescue these people, the hurricane could have been over, and right. everything could have continued in exactly the same way. But no, there has to be like the wind and the torrential rain. And... Right. And the church is gonna fall down. Yeah, so yeah, Rizvan finds all the people in like the center of the town in the church, and then the news crew shows up there too, and I'm just like, I'm like, Y'all are acting like it's really easy to just, like, walk into a hurricane-decimated area where there is currently an active hurricane. When you started in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. I don't... I don't know. And then... 
as this is being televised, a whole bunch of other people, including his brother and sister-in-law, just show up. Again, hurricane's still happening. <laughs> Striding through chesty water. Holding, like, supplies above their heads. And I understand the sentiment behind this. And also, I'm having to suspend a lot of disbelief here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like, the scene right after that is a news person talking about, like, wow, it's really weird that the government is doing absolutely nothing to help this small, poorer town in Georgia. Yeah. Um, and so I was glad that they actually framed it in the film as government inaction, because that is super true. Yeah, especially for a 200-person a town black community in right it's like rural georgia and and it's interesting because you know i was like oh is this kind of supposed to echo katrina mm-hmm. um there was a major delay in aid and when it did come it came first to the wealthier white communities yeah but so then rizman goes on the news for an interview and reese samir's best friend who was present at his death but who has held the secret um, for like six or seven months at this point, mm-hmm. uh, he sees hit the interview and it inspires him to go tell his mom and Mandira the truth about how Samir died. So then we see that the deadbeats are arrested and Mandira asks for leniency for Reese. This was another of the moments that like in watching it, I was like, I think three of the four boys who we see beat up Samir are white. Mm-hmm. And I just had the thought of like, Nothing's going to happen to those toys. They're going to do, like, community service or something. Yeah. 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 Which is just the reality of, yeah, the racist judicial system here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So uplifting. Again, lots of things that are still relevant today. Exactly. Yeah. None of them are generally good. But back in Georgia, Rizvan says he has to leave because he has to meet Bush before the election. Because it is now, like, November... And as he's about to leave, he turns and sees Mandira. She's here too. Yeah. Um, and as they're looking at each other, an extremist follower, I was just like, this has gone off the rails. I know. I was like, what? <laughs> an extremist follower of the terrorist recruiter that was arrested earlier just enters the frame and stabs Rizvan. Yeah. I was actually really disappointed by that choice. Yeah. You had a movie that is literally all about this is not what represents Islam. Like, here's all these good deeds that, that Muslim people do, and that is what embodies Islam. And then you have this guy yeah. go out of his way to go to this small town in Georgia and stab Rizvan? Like, right. If they wanted him to be injured in some way, where he'd have to be in the hospital and there'd have to be this, you know, this big he, moment he between him fallen. and Mandira. He could have gotten hurt in the hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just, it felt like we are too close to the end of this movie. Yep. Like, we already have the Twin Towers fell. We already had the terrorist recruiter. Like, let's not bring this up again. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. It's like, if with the, with having the terrorist recruiter in that moment, yeah. that's all of the, there is some evil in this right. religion in the same way there is in every faction of every society. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's there, but there's also mostly good. We had that already. We didn't need that with this guy who stabs him. Yeah. As 
the nations, it's funny because I'd originally written as Obama was elected, and then I realized, oh, okay, we're not saying it's Obama. Um, as the nation's first African-American president is elected, Rizvan is in the emergency room being treated for his stab wound, um, and the doctors are able to stabilize him, and he survives. Thank God, because I was like, I swear, you cannot kill this man. Too. I know. Like, yeah. Uh, and then Rizvan wakes up, and Mandira is there, and so they are, they're okay. They're gonna be alright. Yay! And then Rizvan still insists on meeting the president-elect, and so they go to where he is doing a speech, and Rizvan is brought up on stage to meet him. The president-elect then addresses this crowd of people after he shakes uh, Rizvan's hand, and we get a voiceover from Mandira speaking to Samir about the love that Rizvan shared with everyone. And that's the end of the movie. And I will say that in her speech to Samir, she makes it seem as though her reaction was bad. Like, her reaction to Samir's death. Ah. You know, she's like, I responded with hatred, but Rizvan showed nothing but love and compassion, and, like, that's the path forward. Yes, in general, love and compassion is what you should do. But if you are a mother whose son was just murdered, you're allowed to feel hatred. I think that the way that sh- the way that she responded was completely justifiable, as I've already said. And yeah, maybe yeah. it was a lot for her to kick her husband out of the house. But sure. I also understand why she felt like she needed to do that. Yeah. Did they set this movie six years after... 9-11 just because they wanted to have I, Obama <laughs> I, I thought about that, that too and I feel like yes like yeah. I feel like they wanted to make a point it, it made it seem like you know this man is trying to see Bush time yeah. and time again he even gets like publicity as a man who's trying to meet with the president and then mm-hmm. it's like well Bush won't meet with him but then of course literally like two days after the Obama figure is elected, he's like, yeah, I'll meet with you. Come up on stage. Like, which, again, and he's already, like, yeah. we see him even just watching the news and, like, that guy looks interesting. And that was the moment, because, again, like I said at the start, I hadn't, like, the years just didn't mm-hmm. click in my brain until that moment where we see Obama watching the news and someone's like, Mr. Senator. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. That's right. <laughs> it's 2008. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting choice. I I don't know that it was necessary. Yeah. Although, you know, again, it's like if you are watching from afar and you're watching this president's reaction to all of this happening and you strongly disagree with it, and Obama literally symbolizes hope. Yeah. Sure. Maybe it yeah. makes sense. That of all of the things that all of the choices that were made in this movie isn't the one I find the most objectionable. <laughs> no, no. I think the way the hurt, like, the stabbing was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I do want to, though, I, I want to make sure we talk a little bit more about Hasina, Rizvan's sister-in-law, and the choice she makes towards the end of the movie, very much inspired by Rizvan, to wear her hijab again. Yeah. Go walk into the classroom and say to her students, this is who I am, Mm -hmm. this is my religion, and I'm not going to hide it any longer. Yeah. 
I, we've talked about this a lot, the interplay between not just, like, religious belief, but also just, like, cultural belief mm-hmm. out, outside of, of religious culture. And hijab is such an interesting representation of that in Islam, because here we have this woman who is empowered by making the choice to wear that in front of her students and not yeah. be afraid of what the repercussions might be. And then we think about the the protests that were happening last year right. in, you know, where women were protesting having to wear hijab and it was mm-hmm. empowering for them to not wear it and to demonstrate that they didn't need to in order to belong to their faith. So it's it's just really interesting. This movie, it, it yeah. there, there's a lot to dissect as even in even as we're so many years out from it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, again, I think it's really interesting watching this movie now. Maybe even more interesting than it would have been for us watching it in, like, 2011. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because I feel like I have more perspective than I did, you know, when I was 16. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, uh, what did you research? Yeah, so I, I actually, like, I started researching two different things oh. at first because I couldn't decide what I wanted to focus on. And the option that I didn't end up going with was the experience of Muslim people in the U.S. compared to the experience of Muslim people in India. Mm. Um, fascinating things, uh, yeah. but it was just too big (laughs) of a topic for me to really feel like we could focus on in one episode. And I also know that we will definitely be talking more about the experience of Muslim people in India. And I think it would be reasonable for us to consider what that that experience in the U.S. as well uh, in a future point. So with that in mind, Mm -hmm. I instead went with my my other option, which was cognitive disability and difference in India. Oh, yeah. Even though, again, that didn't end up being as much of a focal point of this movie, I think really important to to think about and be aware of. And they did make the choice to have this character be on the autism spectrum. So I wanted to, first of all, talk a little bit about in the movie, what we hear that Rizvan has been diagnosed with is Asperger's Mm -hmm. and not autism initially. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a little bit of a sense of where that kind of shift happened in our understanding of cognitive disability, but I wanted to solidify my understanding and also share that with anyone who may not be as familiar with with what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Asperger's is no longer an official diagnosis as of 2013, Mm -hmm. and it has been absorbed into the autism spectrum. Okay. The distinction was that Asperger's did not carry with it the lack of language or cognitive delay, but that is characteristic of some on the autism spectrum. Uh, But not every person with autism experiences those things, and Asperger's was eliminated to avoid any clinical confusion or, you know, sort of like splitting hairs between what's the difference between a person with autism and a person with Asperger's. They're similar enough. We're just going to call it the same thing. Got it. Previously, the distinction there had led to those with Asperger's receiving less care because people who had been diagnosed with it were classified as quote-unquote high-functioning, which in addition to having negative connotations for those who may not qualify as high-functioning, suggests that individuals with Asperger's have an easier time moving through the world compared to those with autism, which Mm -hmm. often is not the case. And who is it for we who are neurotypical to 
assign people as having an easier time or a harder time based on their diagnosis. Yeah. Also, Hans Asperger, for whom the condition was named, yeah. uh, was involved with the Nazi eugenics program. Um, so Rizvan so, didn't mention that. Nope. <laughs> so we just don't need to, we don't need to think about him or have him associated with the very people Ooh. who he would likely have wanted to eliminate from society. Yeah. So, in India, about 18 million people have been diagnosed with ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, um, and one to one and a half percent of children aged two to nine have been diagnosed. The numbers there could be higher as individuals could be living with ASD without a diagnosis, particularly in rural parts of the country. Um, An article by Desai et al., a study done in 2012, aimed at understanding the lived experiences of parents of children with ASD in India, paying particular attention to how cultural beliefs and indigenous viewpoints impacted responses to autism spectrum disorder. So this article was really helpful in understanding what are some of the ways that people relate to this diagnosis based on their cultural experience as Indian people. Right. The participants of the study were 12 parents of 10 children with autism spectrum disorder living in Goa. The children ranged in age from 5 to 23. They were from all different religious backgrounds, from rural and urban settings within the state of Goa, but still they were limited to families who had access to medical and educational supports. And so that's where the study identified itself as being somewhat limited. The study found that families moved through four different stages in their experience of raising a child on the autism spectrum, beginning with early on, before the child has exhibited any signs of having autism, having what they and their friends consider to be quote-unquote normal parental setbacks, um, but overall what they see as being a normal parenting experience. In the second stage, as behavioral indicators of autism begin to appear, they're often attributed to, again, quote-unquote, normal and temporary childhood phases. Desai et al. found that, on average, parents in India notice first signs and symptoms of autism in their children six to ten months later than in the West. Oh, interesting. And some of this is due to local cultural beliefs, such as things like boys speak late and Mm. children often have quote-unquote thick tongues so that you know a lot of times elders in these families would be saying oh you were just the same way when you were a kid like they'll grow out of it it's fine if autism was a term that these families were familiar with they were not at this stage associating it with their child Uh, The third stage marked growing concerns particularly related to a child's ability to engage socially with others as they begin to spend more time outside of the home and out in the world. As they're beginning to have social experiences, that is where these families were beginning to think this is actually a persistent and potentially pervasive problem. Right. Problem being their understanding of how how it's happening. This third stage was often elicited by an outsider's observation regarding the child's behavior. One mother even recalled being called a bad parent by a doctor, blaming her for not recognizing the early signs of a cognitive disability and called her child a vegetable because of his, his speech patterns. I feel like that's literally part of the training that doctors receive. 
yeah, like bedside manner. <laughs> yeah, and also understanding that not everyone has the knowledge that you do about exactly. these things. And... Yeah, very disappointing to hear that this that this mother had this experience. Parents in this stage may still continue to hope that these behaviors will be temporary, but that hope is is starting to diminish, and the parents are beginning to consider how their child's future may be impacted particularly with regard to education, because mm. education in India and elsewhere is seen as the best opportunity for having a bright future. Right. Some families even reported consulting with practitioners of alternative medicine. Um, one consulted with an Ayurvedic doctor who blamed their child's symptoms on a quote-unquote choked-up nerve. Oh, okay. um, the Ayurvedic texts we talked about briefly in a previous episode are medical texts uh, associated with the Hindu faith from right. early on. Okay. And then another family consulted with uh, a different Hindu healer who blamed their child's undiagnosed autism on a curse and suggested that prayers to Ganesh could be a cure. Mm. So these cultural-based approaches delayed these families in seeking proven medical support relevant to their child who was on the spectrum. So then the fourth and final stage, which not every participant in the study had yet gotten to, uh, but it was acceptance and acknowledgement that the child had a cognitive disability and therefore the family's assumptions about their care and the child's future would need to adapt so that they could align with reality. Um, this is paired with new worries about how the child would be accepted in society at large and how they would continue to live after the parents were gone or in other ways unable to provide care. A similar study in the U.S. found that parents go through similar phases throughout their child's development, but the key difference is that the parents in the Indian study had previously had either a vague or unclear understanding of what autism was, if they had heard of it at all. Whereas in the U.S., people have at least a little bit of a better sense of what autism is, even though there are very clear and obvious ways in which folks in the U.S. misinterpret autism what causes it and what it yeah. what it means for their child to be diagnosed with it. I'm also I'm saying children because this is the time when people get diagnosed with autism. Obviously, they grow to be adults with autism right. as well. So, in general, educational support for disabled people in India is very much lacking. Mm. A UN report estimates that 75% of people with disabilities of any kind, whether they're physical or cognitive, do not attend any sort of educational institution over their lifetime. Oh. India has seemingly comprehensive policies surrounding inclusive education, i.e. an educational setting where students with disabilities are taught alongside their peers without disabilities. Mm -hmm. However, students with disabilities and their parents and even the schools themselves are not adequately prepared for this experience. Right. Nearly 70% of school teachers report never having received training in teaching students with various disabilities, mm. and 87% of teachers report not having access to the resources they would need to support those students. Right. Like, there's still some additional accommodations that would need to be made. Exactly. You can't yeah. just put them all in a room together and say, teach them go. all. Yeah. yeah. No, no matter how accepting or welcoming you may be. There's right. still a lot more that you need to know to be able to do that effectively. Students may struggle to then intake information being taught in a way that caters to their non-disabled peers, mm -hmm. and parents may therefore be reluctant to send their students to mainstream schools. Schools specifically for students with particular learning and or physical disabilities do exist, but they may not be accessible to all. 
right. I imagine because we also have that in the states, and yeah. some of those schools carry a pretty high price tag. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there have also been proven advantages to this inclusive model of education mm-hmm. when it's done well. And that's the really humongous asterisk that follows any of that research. So the Rights of Persons with Disabilities Act of 2016 is an act in India that places the burden of responsibility to provide accommodations in an academic setting on the government's shoulders. So that is for the government to be providing to the people of India. Guidelines enacted in 2018 included accommodations like note takers, lab assistants, extended time on assessments, and use of assistive devices in educational settings, but only to those with 40% or more of a diagnosed disability. What does that even mean? And I have to assume that the, I don't know how you would quantify a cognitive disability, so I have to assume they're only thinking of physical disabilities. Like when they note that forty percent impacts your ability to what? Right, exactly. It's like what is this based on? Is this like if you are a person who is visually impaired and you only and like forty percent or more of your vision is impaired, or is it your your life is forty percent harder? Like how do they qualify this? Doesn't make any sense. Seems like it's just asking to let people fall through the cracks. Well, exactly. Yes. And the Supreme Court of India agreed, um, and they ordered that new guidelines be written for those who were less than 40% disabled. Again, whatever that means. (laughs) Great. But these new guidelines, which were drafted in 2021 and then enacted in 2022, failed to mention those with specific learning disabilities and autism spectrum disorder. Autism spectrum disorder is not classified as a specific learning disability, but those with ASD may also have a specific learning disability, or their symptoms could manifest in a way that makes neurotypical learning and assessment styles difficult or impossible for them to access. Government-supported accommodations don't include anything designed to assist neurodivergent communication for a person with autism. They don't include things like disability support professionals or special educators. So really just totally lacking in things that are proven supports for these young people as they go through their education. Support for people with autism in India is largely coming from private entities with actually very little support coming from the government. And one such organization in India uh, that has been supporting people with autism and their families for decades is Action for Autism, or AFA. And AFA has been at the forefront of education and advocacy for nearly 30 years. Um, They started the first school specializing in education for children with autism in 1994. They launched the first of its kind vocational training program for adults with autism in 1999. Uh, They pioneered a program for parent empowerment in 2001. They've been doing a lot of really great work. Yeah, that's great. They state on their website that their mission is to, quote, facilitate an inclusive and barrier-free environment that enables the empowerment of persons with autism and their families. And they also note that, as an organization, we do not view having a child with autism to be a tragic or unfortunate situation for either the parent or the child. So trying to spin that idea that having a child on the spectrum is a bad or sad thing to this is just the way your child moves through the world. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm yeah. happy to hear they've been around, too, for like 30 years. Yes, yes, and, and doing what I understand to be some very good work. Mary Barua, who is the director of the AFA, elaborates on the lack of services and awareness that exist in India, noting that autism, particularly in rural parts in the country, 
um, where we also know the majority of Indian people live, um, it largely goes undiagnosed, as I mentioned at the start of my research, and there's often little support or knowledge around the diagnosis in these areas. Barua also notes how people with autism face widespread discrimination and are often barred from schools and employment. The emphasis on educational success in most Indian families causes a lot of frustration for children with autism and their parents. Because students with autism are often bullied, because teachers are ill-equipped to support their students or provide inclusionary education, um, students with autism often don't perform well, even if they don't have a learning disability, and maybe even ask to leave school simply so that that school can maintain its rank. Oh, yeah. I hate that. It also adds some um, context to Rizvan's mom yes. making the decision she made. Um, yeah, finding a private tutor for him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and even that seemed like it was touch and go. Like she didn't know that that tutor would actually take him on. Yeah. Right. So going back to the Desai et al. study, participants reported that their experience was, quote, characterized in part by patience, joy, social advocacy, and fighting for acceptance. Most expressed having no expectations or desires to pressure their child with autism, merely wishing for them a comfortable and enjoyable life. It sounds like Indian society has a long way to go before we can reach that point, but with organizations like the AFA and with loving families fighting for their rights, hopefully people with autism and or other disabilities will find their paths through life clearer in the future. Yeah. So signs of hope. <laughs> yes. Good people doing good work. And I know that that's not the whole story. And there's still right. a lot of work to be done. Yeah, yeah. Like wanting the best for your children can only take you so far if yeah. literally that infrastructure just doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. Even just simple things like translating all of the research that's been done about autism spectrum disorder into more Indian languages other than Hindi. Because yeah. as of right now, it's like either you need to be fluent in English or fluent in Hindi to be able to understand any of it. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really interesting topic. Um, um, I did have one piece of Bollywood news real quick. Oh, great. Because I don't, other than... Tiger Shroff posted a video of him singing a Bruno Mars song, but I was mostly distracted by the fact that he wasn't wearing a shirt. And <laughs> like, I almost texted you because I was just like, we get it. You're jacked. Like, you can put a shirt on to freaking, like, sing a song. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't know. You know, it, do it doesn't make your singing any better to not be wearing a shirt, so. No. Tiger's just thirst trapping all over the place. He is. That's really, it's one of his best skills, really. <laughs> Anyway, what's um, your Bollywood news? <laughs> My Bollywood news is uh, the teaser for Rocky or Rani ki Prem Kahani dropped. Oh, I haven't seen it. Another Karan Johar movie. Yeah. It looks like a humongous movie. Uh, this is the movie that's starring Ranveer Singh and mm -hmm. Alia Bhatt. There's tons of singing and dancing and crying. <laughs> I find myself very concerned that this movie may have tried to do too much because it really uh -oh. does look like a lot. Oh, no. um, also, I have my concerns about the chemistry between Ranveer Singh mm. and Alia Bhatt in the same way that I would with any two humongous stars who I have never seen in a movie together. Yep. But I'm going to go in with an open mind whenever this movie becomes available for me to watch. Yeah. My hope is, like, but I had felt that way about Tuju Jimaine Makar because I had never seen Shraddha and Ron Beer in a film together, yeah. I don't think. But it was fun! Yeah, they did so, great. Yeah. Hopefully the same is true here. 
Fingers crossed. All right. Pluggables. Mm-hmm. You know our spiel. Follow us on Instagram. Two white girls talk Bollywood. Like our stuff. DM us if you want. Yeah. Um, also, you can subscribe, rate, leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us. Uh, we appreciate that as well. And if you don't want to do any of that, that's okay. We just appreciate you listening. Yep. We still love you. Yes. And also join us on YouTube and Spotify on our Bollywood Bangers playlists. I keep forgetting to put the songs on from some of the movies we've watched recently, but I will do that. (laughs) By the time you're hearing these words, uh, those lists will be up to date, I promise. (laughs) Uh, And we link them in our episode descriptions as well as in our Instagram posts on Tuesdays. Perfect. Thanks, Kim. Thank you, Katie. And thank all of you. (laughs) Yes. So, we're doing something a little different next week. Yeah. Because, once again, trying to keep up with the new stuff. Um, And so we had noticed that Umra had come out on Netflix. And as we were talking about, okay, maybe we could watch that, Kim informed me. (laughs) It is a Hindi remake of a Tamil film. So... We don't want to watch the same exact film two weeks in a row. No, but we do want to make sure that we are from now on always watching the original and not just the Hindi remake. Now that we yes. have done the research, we are <laughs> better educated than we were before. Yes. yes. <laughs> but so Kim is going to take the Tamil original. Which is called Tadam. And I am going to watch Gomra. We will both be doing a plot recap. And we'll talk about it. Yeah. I'm excited. I, I'm excited too. It's you know we're we've been doing this for like six months now. I think it's a good time for us to shake things up a little bit and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna read the IMDb yeah. description of Tadam. Yeah, and I will read the Netflix description of Gumra. Perfect. Okay, so IMDb says that Tadam is about the murder of a youngster, which creates confusion among cops when they discover the suspect has a lookalike. God, it's a murder? Child murder? I'm so sorry I'm doing this to you again, Katie. Oh, God. Just, it's rough. But you know what? Okay. That was left out of the Netflix synopsis. Oh, okay. Um, the Netflix synopsis of Gumra is a murder investigation becomes more complicated when a police inspector discovers that the primary suspect has an uncanny lookalike. Yeah. So based on the descriptions... These movies may very well be the exact same, frame for frame. Sound very, very similar, yes. But we will find out. (laughs) We will find out, and we will discuss. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Gumra is available on Netflix, and it's spelled G-U-M-R-A-A-H. And Tadam is available on Amazon Prime. It is only available to rent for those of us who live in the U.S., but it is spelled T-H-A-D-A-M. So, let's do it. We'll separate, we'll watch these things, we'll come back and uh, have a party. We'll see what happens. (laughs) All right. Child murder. (laughs) Hopefully they glance over that. I have to think that it's just, you know, mentioned and not too graphic. And we don't maybe become mine. attached to the child. Yeah, maybe mine won't be about a child murder. You know, maybe, maybe they will have changed it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Just leave all the child murder with me. <laughs> yep. And until then, remember, Bollywood doesn't need us. Mm-mm. But we need Bollywood. We
do. And sometimes we needed to understand what's going on in our own country. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs>